3CR Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Burung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We recognize sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. And good morning, all two of us. Good morning, Judith. How have you been? I've been well, thank you. And you? I'm doing good. Um, I'm a, I've actually, um, on my very, very last week of finishing all my assignments, and then after this week, I'm finally done. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, what, what's the first thing you're going to do after you've handed in your last paper? Oh, I'm not sure. I, I definitely have plans for going out, so I'm very excited for that because I feel like I really needed this break after a very long time of just uni and doing a lot of stuff and yeah i'm also actually going back home to malaysia in about two weeks so i'm very i'm very looking forward to that right oh that all sounds really really good i had a more relaxing weekend with no papers to go in although i did do a lot of reading Mm -hmm. about stories for today so about what's been happening in china and also the what we might expect um in the budget around environment because that'll be our first story this morning but uh so i did some reading but i also went up some lovely walks and uh, yeah it was good no jazz no jazz this weekend (laughs) (laughs) that's okay we all have our different things we want to do and different things we like to experience every week yeah yeah yeah, and fitting it all in is always a a bit of a challenge yeah exactly and yeah basically only two of us for today yes and let's shout out to claudia she's listening out there and uh, wishing her great breaks this week Mm -hmm, yeah definitely so, yeah, let's head on to talking about our segments that will be yeah, happening well, today. Yeah, well, you know, my first guest this morning is Michael Varden, and he's been looking at, um, uh, well, what we might expect from the budget, and but also what we need around uh, environmental accounting. So some really interesting ideas about environmental accounting. I mean, we spend so much time, you know, on Mm -hmm. budgets and uh, other kinds of accounting. Where's the money going, all of that? But he's going to take us through what he thinks is needed in Australia because we've got a pretty poor record at the moment. But look, I mean, Michael will join us at 7.10 and we'll hear more about that from Michael. Exactly. Um, what about what about you? Who are you going to be speaking with? Who's your guest? I, well, for me, I spoke to Dr. Catherine Kent, who is a public health lecturer at School of Health Sciences at University of Western Sydney. And we discussed about food insecurity circulating among university staffs and students. And so it was very interesting because um, we always looked at how university students are having food insecurity, which means that uh, you don't have enough, uh, not enough money to uh, provide yourself healthy foods yes. and affordable food to eat. So I think this was very interesting, but we always tend to forget there's also university staffs Yes, that indeed. are going through this as well. So very interesting to look at this. And yeah, we also will be looking at how this problem can be solved 
Oh, great. Yep. That sounds good. And look, one of the reasons I was so busy on the weekend was I was reading about China's uh, 20th National Congress mm-hmm. because um, around 7.45, I think I'll be speaking with um, the amazing Yu Dao. Uh, who was in Singapore when I spoke to him, and that was interesting because I contacted him, I think, last Friday and said, um, you know, would he be available for a Zoom? And he said, look, you know, I'd love to. I'm in Singapore and the Internet is not great in the hotel, mm-hmm. but, let you know, let's try. <laughs> so we chatted um, on Monday. And um, he, what he did was he actually had a look at um, – Xi Jinping's speech at the beginning of the Congress has gone a report and uh, tried to pick out some clues, some hints about, you know, where China might go in the next five years. Mm-hmm. So I'll be speaking with you, Tao, uh, yeah, around uh, 7.45, and I found that really useful, really interesting, his perspective. That's a very good, interesting um, interview I'll be looking forward to. And lastly, I will be speaking to Jakali Romanis, who is a proud Pita Pita woman artist, researcher and curator, who is currently conducting her PhD research in Monash University. Her research actually focuses on examining uh, large corporations like Google Earth, and we will be discussing problematic Western maps as such. Oh, and very interesting. Fascinating. Exactly. I'm, I'm very excited to be uh, conducting this chat with her later. And yet we'll also be looking at the myth of the Terra Nullis, which means a land belonging to no one. And so, yeah, looking at the story, how it goes with that. And very excited to be looking uh, to be chatting about this. Oh, it sounds like a, a really interesting show this morning. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah, going to I, lots of places, different places, definitely. including around the world. Exactly. Yeah, we're going global today. <laughs> we're going global. We're going global. We are. Yeah, yes. definitely. Um, well, so um, before we head on to our next segment, we've got a song for you. This is called The Land That We Love by Buck and Joey McKenzie. This is the land we come from The roads and the streets we've grown up on For we're a beat that is part of Australia, a beat that is part of the land that we And when we're away 
beat that is part of the heart of Australia. A beat that is part of the land that we love. We are of the land. We stand. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and that was called The Land That We Love by Buck and Joe McKenzie. Now I'll be passing on to Judith. Yes, and uh, I'm very excited this morning to be speaking with Dr. Michael Varden. Uh, he's, con- he conducts research and teaches environmental accounting at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the Australian National University. And last week, he and his colleague, Peter Burnett, published a paper in the conversation entitled, Our Environmental Responses Are Often Piecemeal and Ineffective. Next week's well-being budget is a chance to act. So, Michael, welcome uh, to 3CR this morning. Good morning, Judith. And uh, also, thank you for getting up early. And I'm wondering uh, if you were up late pondering what you heard in the budget last night. Uh, yes, I was with uh, a few other people. Um, no, so we did it by ourselves. But yeah, looking through it, um, yeah, uh, several very big documents to go through with lots of numbers. Um, <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> but you're um, good with numbers because you do data, I understand. Yes, well, I'm good at recording numbers. Um, yeah, there is many different ways to be good with numbers, but I can add and subtract with the best of them. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's very reassuring for me. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Now, at the opening of your paper, you say that the well-being budget will, amongst other things, assess the state of our natural places using a set of environmental indicators. But then you hasten to add that getting meaningful environmental measures into the well-being budget won't be easy and tokenism won't do. So what's the current state of environmental reporting in Australia? Um. Yes. Well, at the moment, uh, the main report is a five-yearly state of the environment report. Uh, and the latest one came out uh, earlier this year, in uh, August. Um, and it told us, I think what most of us know, is that the environment's continuing to degrade. 
And in fact, every five years, we get a report which says more or less the same thing, but it does it using different pieces of information. Now, all of the information is good, uh, but it's pasted together uh, in different ways. And in fact, the State of the Environment report goes back to 1996. There's a few gaps in the years, but it's never been done the same way twice. Oh, well, then that doesn't give us really any longitudinal data, does it? No, it, it certainly doesn't, uh, and um, it makes it difficult. Sorry, it makes it difficult to compare what's been happening. Yeah, it, and certainly, it's so one, you don't know what's happening. Two, you can't compare it over time, and then three, you don't know if what you're doing is working. Uh, and what we do know is what we are doing is not working because it's continuing to go bad. Um, and oh, sorry, and with that, maybe it would have got badder faster we hadn't do anything but we don't really know because we don't have the information available to test that yes and you warn the government against relying on partial uninformative or misleading environmental statistics so i'm wondering what statistics were you thinking about when you said that yeah well let's um i'll get to the this big system of environmental economic accounting but one of the things and it was triggered last week by a, a report in the um the nine newspapers in the Sydney Morning Herald, I read it, but I assume it was in the age as well, uh, that uh, the government was considering, you know, using the OECD's measures, and the OECD recommends using lists of endangered species, but they're not really very good because, one, the species aren't really monitored, you just put them on the list, and it relies on an administrative process for that. So there's not people actively looking and checking and upgrading, uh, and it's reliance on administrative process, um, which is you know, flawed, perhaps the, the wrong thing, but it, but it's not particularly good. Um, yes, so, so, so that can... was sorry. That's related then to particularly to threatened species, and it sounds like we really don't have a a good sense of that. We we don't have enough information uh, because the environment department hasn't been well resourced. Is that part of the problem? Yeah, that's certainly part of the problem. So there's no, no money for ongoing monitoring, no systematic recording of data. Uh, and, for example, in the um, Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, um, uh, you can't even search the, the website um, where all of these reports are doing by the types of species or ecosystems which triggered the referral let alone then go to the referral and see what actions were taken and then see if what of the ever actions taken had any sort of impact uh, on the species which were listed. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and, you know, we've tried this, uh, made special crest, and it's the people at the department have been very helpful and have been trying to help, but, you know, the system is old and clunky and there just simply aren't enough people to record and store the information, let alone go out... Um, and have a systematic monitoring. Yes, I mean, I've, I've heard this, you know, just in a, a sort of a whole other place in a different spot where people are trying to um, prevent having a, a quarry uh, put on a river which is quite damaged. And uh, one of the things they're saying is is the data that's available is so out of date that they're, it's difficult for them to make the argument. So this, this sort of thing plays out in a day-to-day basis in the way people are endeavouring to act on, on the environment and improve things. You've also talked about protected areas. 
Yeah, so that's um, the other thing. So protected areas are a very important part of conservation, and Australia has signed up to the thirty thirty. It will, you know, it will um, protect thirty percent of the area and thirty percent of the sea, which is fine, but um, and and certainly very good. But the issue is that it's not going to protect thirty percent of each of the ecosystems. Oh, <laughs> uh, I see. <laughs> so it will protect thirty percent large areas. Um, of um, country, uh, which are very useful for some things, but it doesn't conserve a representative sample of the biodiversity. So we'll get lots of areas of desert and land which isn't suitable for agriculture, and we'll get very small areas of um, things like boxgum grassy woodland, which is there's hardly any of it left. Yes. Oh, that this is so sad. It's so sad to hear these things. Um, yeah. And so where we are is clearly inadequate. What do we need? So what we need is, you know, consistent, reliable, regular, and I think above all, trusted information. And you compare the environment to what we have with the economy. So we have the Australian Bureau of Statistics, uh, where I worked for many years, is a big number factory. And every month we get uh, inflation, uh, we get um, unemployment numbers. Every quarter we get the system of national accounts, uh, and this provides us with a lot of information. Now, the system of national accounts gives us the number gross domestic product GDP. Now, that's the one number which gets reported, but actually behind that sits a mountain of information. Yes, <laughs> uh, I, I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that there is, you know, I said it's a number factory. I mean, it's, um, you know, there really are a lot of people involved in putting those numbers together, which are then looked at, you know, every month, every quarter by people at the Treasury, Reserve Bank, Ministry of Finance, um, all of, all of um, those things. Now, you compare that with the Department of Environment, who once every five years gets a State of the Environment report. And it's <laughs> no, August. No, no comparison at all. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's August and we've already forgotten about of it. Yes. And it was published in August after it sat on a minister's desk for at least six or seven months. Right. Because they... <laughs> yes. And compare that to the ABS, it comes out to a set schedule. Uh, every quarter, every month, comes out on time. No minister needs to report it. The information's reported good or bad. We accept it as true. Uh, the best representation of what we've got, and we act on that information. So we're at least all agreeing on the information, and then we have agencies and systems which can receive that information and respond to it. Yes, I, I mean, you know, I, I really think that the government hasn't caught up with the level of reporting that is needed on the environment to help uh, the government and the people respond to what the situation we're in, which is really a climate crisis. But uh, what's the result of this poor um, environmental accounting? Uh, so, yeah, so we don't have, you know, we've got good economic information. We've got irregular and sporadic environmental information. What we need is, firstly, one, better environmental information, but then we need a regular integration of the information so we can see how the economy affects the environment and the environment affects the economy because the economy is dependent on the environment. The economy wouldn't exist without the environment. Indeed, yes, for sure. <laughs> so, 
So in, in this, we need a system which connects the information. And for this, uh, the United Nations has come up with the system of environmental economic accounting, which means we can plug in all of the environmental information into the economic information. Well, that that sounds really interesting. But just before we come to that, I really felt I needed to mention the salami, the environment <laughs> salami you talked about in your paper. What is it? Yeah. Yeah, so the environment, uh, I'll come back. You mentioned the gravel pit on the river. Yeah. Uh, I think. The yep, quarry, so yeah, what, proposed quarry. The, the yeah. quarry, sorry. Yeah. Yep. The quarry. Um, so the, the river will have an environment condition and it will be, you know, have some sort of condition. But the river isn't considered as a whole in that decision. It's only the quarry and the bit of the river which the quarry affects. And so what can be said was actually, well, what we're doing is not going to have that great an effect because it's only a little bit of the river. But the problem is that all up and down the river, there's a whole lot of other things having very little, very little effect, having very, having small effects. But together, you add all those little effects together and you've suddenly sliced off one bit of the salami, the environment, and before you know it, you're halfway through it and you don't even realise it because all your decisions are made individually. Yes. So you're not considering the whole. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and, and you, you talk of, about also another example of, of, beside the river of the box gum grassy woodlands, once common across much of southeast Australia. Yeah, and so in this, so they, they were once, you know, and the, the box gum grassy woodlands occur on, you know, the most, uh, the best agricultural land or some of the best agricultural land in the country, or they used to, which is one of the reasons they were cleared because, well, people need to eat, so they clear the trees. Uh, and they plant crops. And so what we have is decisions for box gum grassy woodlands based on people submit a proposal. We would like to clear these seven hectares of box gum grassy woodland to build houses on it. So this is a real example. So they clear the seven hectares. Okay, seven hectares doesn't matter. We reckon, you know, there's about a million hectares of it. Uh, well, sorry, there's... Um, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to remember my own numbers, but let's just say, you know. <laughs> but so, I, but you've ma- I mean, small. I understand the point you've made. Yeah. yeah, it's a very small area, but the problem is then there are 50 or 60 decisions all to, all to remove seven or 100, or, uh, and before you know it, while each individual decision uh, doesn't really affect the whole, after many years and many decisions, suddenly you've got less of it than when you started. And the Act, the Environment Protection Biodiversity Act, it doesn't set up to look at the whole at the moment. Right. And you do say in your paper that a a recovery plan was prepared for the woodlands because they're protected under the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. But there's no evidence the plan was ever delivered. Yeah, and that's, um, yeah, so if we, we look at that, the problem was identified. The solution was, okay, well, bring in the Biodiversity Act, we'll write a plan, um, we'll allocate some money, so the plan shows a budget, but then we can find no evidence at all that the money was ever spent. doesn't mean it wasn't spent, it just means we can't find evidence of it. Oh, but I see. Oh, that's can't. interesting. <laughs> we just can't find it. Yeah that, oh, yeah, that in itself is problematic, isn't it? Yeah, and that's part of the issue. So while you know there is actually quite a lot of information, it's not connected and it's not brought together and it's not regularly assessed. And that is really the point of what we need. 
Uh, and Graham Samuel, in his review of the Biodiversity Act, recommended you know, that the accounts be put into place to help address this problem or at least give us information so we understand the problem. And I think that's one of the keys. The information helps you understand and helps you make decisions but doesn't make the decision. Um, yes, so, uh, I mean, what, what happened to uh, Graham Samuel, to the, or to the recommendations of his review? So, well, um, the current government has said that it will respond fully to that review. So we're, we're looking forward to that. So they've said the right thing. Um, and, you know, that was also one of the things in the uh, article we wrote. The government is saying the right things. They're going to have a wellbeing budget. They're going to respond to Samuel. But it really is, you know, it's uh, will they walk the talk? Yes, uh, oh, for told. sure. <laughs> yeah. So, and, uh, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, you also, you know, just a little while ago, you gave the example of the UN System of Environmental Economic Accounting, or the SSEA, new acronym for me, I have to say, uh, as a possible model. And I do understand the model is new as well. Can you just say more about that? Yeah, so the, this model, it's new, but it's old, like many things. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it began, <laughs> it began after the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. The, the UN called for the value of nature to be included in decision-making. Uh, so in a very UN way, they called for it in 1992, and then they dropped it on the table in 1993. That was the first version, an experimental version. Uh, and then it went through several parts. And we finally get to last year in 2021 when everyone agrees that this is the way we should do it. So last year uh, at the UN um, Statistical Commission, it was adopted uh, by, you know, all of the 193 countries uh, recognised by the UN. So we have now, if you are going to do environmental accounting, you should do it this way. And the system now has the same status within the UN as the system of national accounts which gives us GDP. Wow, that's uh, that's really interesting. And you give the example of a Victorian study, since I'm in Victoria, we are here in Victoria 3CR, that kind of shows what this kind of accounting can offer. Can you just describe that study? Sure. Well, in this, um, so we lo- looked at an area in the Central Highlands, uh, which is, you know, uh, an area where there's been some contention about how the forests up there, the mountain ash forests, uh, are used. Uh, and um, so there's logging going on. It's used as for uh, water catchment by Melbourne Water, also used by tourists. There's also services which get used by agriculture. Uh, and it is also one of the biggest stores of carbon in the world, uh, are those forests. And so what we did, we looked at that, we accounted for all of, um, all of the environment. Now it's accounting, so we've called them in what they're called environmental assets. And then we look at all of the services that they are delivering, in particular carbon storage, water provisioning, uh, recreational services for tourists, uh, and the timber. And what we found was that the value of all of the services um, together was was very large. I'm going to say $200 million per annum. And only a very small fraction of that was due to the timber, which was extracted. Now, extracting the timber certainly causes um, a lot of changes to the environment. 
uh, and those changes reduce uh, the quality of water and the volume of water which flows uh, to the dams, the Thompson Dam up in, uh, or one of many dams. And what we found is, with a bit of analysis, is if you stopped the native forest harvesting, the actual value of the area would increase because the value of the other services would likely increase too. Well, that was so interesting. So you conducted that study? Are you involved in that study? Yes, so that was with David Lindenmeyer, who might be um, known to your listeners, and Heather Keith. So Heather Keith led the, the study, and she's one of the world's greatest carbon accountants, and David Lindenmeyer is one of the world's greatest biodiversity experts. Uh, so and I think this is the other point. Accounting is always at the back of a document. So accountants support other people. So I'm, I'm not often at the front. Uh. <laughs> uh, accountants are sever, sever, uh, seldom brought to the front. They're often um, quite dull speakers, um, and I can be dull after the first three well, hours. Well, I found it incredibly in interesting, Michael. <laughs> and, and I particularly found this study interesting because, of course, there's been a lot of protests about uh, what's been happening with native forests here in Australia. But when you've provided the, the economic background, and in fact it's more economical, more valuable to keep those forests rather than to you know have extract them, um, I don't think the Victorian government has heard the news. Did you send them the study? Oh, look, they did that, and David and Heather certainly briefed um, the minister or the minister's staff uh, and then it, it was very flattering. The, the department um, uh, uh, copied the style, copied perhaps, but they, they looked at the system and then they did it for all regional forest agreement areas in Victoria, okay. uh, which was a, a very nice study. And then, you know, sometime later, they did announce the phase-out of, of the um, timber industry, native forest timber industry in Victoria. So, you know, that might be happening slower than some people would like, I think definitely um, but... I think definitely that is the case because we yeah. regularly hear about protests of the logging but it's good that um you know it's great that that study has been made available it's well that it's been done and that the government obviously has listened and uh, the speed with which we need to act I guess is, is an important question as well but I found it interesting you also say that Australia's governments um, had endorsed the SEEA and adopted a national strategy to implement it. So what's happened to that? That's a very good question. Uh, so I, I know it's going ahead and I'm involved in various bits and pieces, so I'll declare a bit of self-interest here. But it, it, one of the things is it's piecemeal. <laughs> Um, it's sort of more case studies, more tinkering, and we haven't yet brought it together. And it's still, I would say, science-dominated, and you certainly need the science, but the key point of this system is to join it to the economics so that you can bring it in to the systems, which Jim Chalmers is using as the treasurer, to allocate resources to things. So, the, this, you know, the amount of resources we have, money, um, is limited and we have to decide what, how it is best used. So health, education, welfare, all of those things are important. How do we make the case for the environment to get a larger share of the resources in the short term so that there are longer term benefits for everybody in the, the well, their well-being as a whole? 
Yes. And, and that, mm-hmm, sorry. Did, no, no, please. Yeah. Oh, so when you wrote the paper, our environmental responses are often piecemeal and ineffective. Next week's um, well-being budget is a chance to act. You were waiting to see what environmental information would be included in the well-being budget. So it's still early days, but how did you feel about what you heard last night? Well, I think it was um, it, it, the encouraging things was they say they will do things. Yes. So they say they will have a well-being budget. Uh, they say they're going to look at what's been done in the past, which is great. And they have, you know, they've opened it for comments. Uh, they're going to have, you know, measuring what matters is what they've called it. So I'll certainly be making comments on that. They say there will be a response um, to Samuel's, uh, the Samuel Review. They, they've allocated money. We heard about it in the lead up to the budget to the Great Barrier Reef and also saving um, native species. Uh, and also an environment protection authority. But looking at the wellbeing budget, they said they were looking at the OECD framework, which said they would use the number of endangered species, which is a very poor indicator uh, and won't really help. Oh, well, <laughs> Michael Barton, thank you. We're running out of time, so I just, I mean, there's lots more could be said, but I know you have another paper coming. So maybe when that one comes out, we'll be chatting again. But thank you for joining us on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast this morning. And thank you for your paper. I found it very helpful and very informative. Look, thank you very much, Judith, uh, and nice to have the chance to talk to you and explain a little bit about it. Thank you very much. Our pleasure, totally. Thank you. Very interesting topic there. Well, there was so much in the paper to kind of dig into and look at. So, yeah, it was uh, really great to speak with Michael and for him making time so soon after the budget. So as well, so and so early in the morning. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was just, uh, I was just listening and I was like thinking, wow, this just, it's just imagine one paper and then you just have so much to talk about and it's still never ending. And it's very interesting that the way that you look at the statistics and um, the things going on with like how environment. Uh, is trying to be brought around. Yeah, and, and bringing it into the economics. Yeah, exactly. Because it is an economic issue. I mean, when the, all these floods happen, yeah. that's an economic issue at the personal, individual level and at the country level, you know, right through. Mm-hmm, definitely. And then, and then especially because um, of the recent Victorian floods as well. So it's, um, yeah, just so much to so much to understand that this all actually comes down to a lot of money involved. Yes. So yeah, very interesting to see the economic perspective there with environment. Yeah. yeah. And also I think a kind of um, environmental literacy, yeah. like that some of these concepts and these ideas become just part of our conversations and we understand how to look at them, all of that. So yeah, really lovely having Michael here. Yeah, definitely. Very lovely. Um, well, we don't have much time, actually, so let's head on to our next yes, segment. Yes, Definitely. So uh, I spoke to Dr. Catherine Dr. Kent, who is the public health lecturer at School of Health Sciences at University of Western Sydney, discussing the food insecurity circulating among university staff and students and how can this problem be solved. So, yeah, let's listen. So, um, hi, Katrin, how are you? Hi, thank you for having me on your radio program today. No problem. So, um, my first big question to you is, uh, why are university staffs going hungry? 
So we conducted a study in 2022, in early 2022, that surveyed both university staff and university students at the University of Tasmania. And what we found was that up to one in six uh, university staff and also one in two university students are running out of food because they can't afford to buy any more. Students are really vulnerable to food insecurity and we've known that for a really long time. And the reason for that is because students are often undergoing this uh, period of transition out of home, perhaps into uh, share houses, and they typically have low incomes. We know that government support payments aren't actually enough for putting healthy food on the table. And that's actually what a lot of students are relying on throughout their studies. But what was surprising in our study was that many university staff who are employed by the university also are food insecure. It was the staff who typically have insecure employment, such as casual staff or professional staff, that put them at really high risk of food insecurity. Um, and that is because of perhaps that um, some weeks they might earn more or less than other weeks, depending on what um, work was available at the university. Mm, I see. So... And then has this been going on for a while for the university staff or did it just happen recently? So this is the first study in Australia to actually measure food insecurity in our university staff. We know that food insecurity is actually growing in the Australian community and that's really due to the rising cost of living pressures and the issues that we've effect, um, uh, experienced with the food supply following the COVID-19 pandemic um, that really you know, means that sometimes the food isn't available in the shops. We know that people in a university community aren't actually immune to these particular social pressures. Mm -hmm. But what our results really do show is that universities could do a lot more to effectively combat food insecurity for both students and staff while they're on campus. Mm, I see. And uh, just to confirm, which university was this when you first started this very first survey? So... The study that we conducted was conducted at the University of Tasmania, but that doesn't mean that food insecurity is only an issue affecting Tasmanians mm -hmm. or affecting staff at the University of Tasmania. This is likely to be an issue that's affecting all universities across Australia. In fact, some universities might even have staff who are at higher risk due to higher levels of casual employment or uh, that insecure employment that has come over the previous few years um, due to changes in international student numbers, meaning that work is less available at those university campuses. So this is really an issue that's affecting many, many people across Australia, not just those in a university community. Mm -hmm, I see. But then... Um this was kind of like what boggled my mind is that is it because main is it mainly because of the food available on campus because I what I understand is that usually for like university students um, as as one myself we don't go on we don't go to university that often so we're always not really on campus so um, what are usual working hours of like the full time staffs and and basically just university staffs in general at the universities? So um, I take your point. We know that universities 
um, are changing their campuses. We are transitioning work and classes online, but that doesn't mean that we can't build a vibrant campus community. Mm-hmm. And a vibrant campus community is something that is somewhere where we need affordable and healthy food to be available and accessible, both physically and financially, to all the staff and students who come to campus. So food on campus really shouldn't be viewed as a profit-making business model, but actually it's really an essential investment in campus life. So we're recommending out of our research, which is showing really high levels of food insecurity in uh, staff and students, that not-for-profit campus shops could be a solution to increase the sustainable food on campus and the healthy food on campus, and it could involve campus members growing, cooking and sharing food. That would really help students and staff feel like they're contributing to an on-campus culture and uh, contribute to the food security of uh, both students and staff. And we know that universities have a responsibility to support the well-being of their staff and their students. Uh, So this really should be a priority to reducing food insecurity so that they can improve the lives of their staff and students as well. I see. And then, um, so can we say that this is more of like not being, not having enough healthy food or is it just more of like not enough affordable food? We know that just providing food is not the only solution to food insecurity. People are food insecure typically because they don't have enough money to buy more food. So universities also have a responsibility to um, promote secure employment for their staff and for advocating towards greater incomes um, from the government for their students so that they can reduce food insecurity. That being said, universities still do have a role to play and the uh, healthiness and the affordability of the food that they provide on campus is something that they can really action and take control of as their solution to reducing food insecurity while also advocating for secure employment and increased uh, government support payments for students. I see. Um, well, so, uh, Catherine, uh, thank you so much for that. Um, just to f- finally wrap up with the last question so um because this something is this isn't something that can be done overnight and is an issue that uh, that can be solved so what can what can we actually do for now for the students and university staffs so typically what universities do to help uh, currently their, their students who are food insecure is referring them to external emergency food relief providers or providing, say, one-off vouchers for students to get access to more healthy food uh, at the supermarket. But we know that staff and students can't do their jobs or complete their studies if they're hungry. And so... you. Um, We are calling for all universities to take an audit of their university food um, outlets to ensure there is enough safe, healthy and nutritious food for staff and students to, um, to access. And they really need to put students and staff who are experiencing food insecurity at the front and centre of decision making around what the solutions are for each university campus, because they're going to be different for different universities across Australia. Universities really need to start taking the first steps to um, figuring out what food security is um, food insecurity is happening on their campus so that they can address the solutions. I see. All right. 
Um, sorry, I just suddenly thought of another question. Um, um, is this issue very, I would say, is it very prominent at the moment or is it still, I would say, uh, controllable? What do you mean by controllable? Uh, sorry, as in um, like this issue with the food insecurity for university stuff, is it a very serious thing? Is that, that's the word I can use? Yeah, yeah so uh, we know that most staff and students who are food insecure are regularly going hungry mm-hmm. and skipping meals because they don't have enough money for food. Mm-hmm. So the problem is very serious and urgent action really needs to be uh, taken by universities uh, to address this problem. They really have a duty of care to supporting the health and well-being of their students and staff. And these numbers are very worrying. A lot more needs to be done from universities to effectively combat food insecurity on campus. I see. All right. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Uh, thank you so much, Catherine. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That wow. was Dr. Catherine Kent public health lecturer at the School of Health Sciences at the University of Western Sydney, speaking about food insecurity surrounding university staffs and students. And just to add on, actually, ever since the pandemic, just this year alone, actually, over half a million of Australians struggled to put food on the table. So we, we might know that um, university students often go without food or necessities because they simply can't afford them. But we always just have to always remember that university academics and professional staff also are facing the same problem. I'm interested, Grace, how do, does this play out in your university? You don't have to name it. <laughs> but, I mean, have you seen uh, any evidence of, of it or has it, have you experienced anything like it among you know your friends or yeah, people that are at university. It, it just you know, thinking about what's available in school, in the canteen, things like that. Um, well, definitely, what I can see from my university is that uh, I think one thing I have to point out first is that I don't actually go to university that often. So I think that was one of the questions I was thinking about when I asked uh, yes. Dr. Kent that, oh, actually, a lot of us don't go to university that often, while some do stay near campus but you know we definitely are there all the time so I was just mm. questioning how that, is this... I mean sorry to interrupt but that's a big change in university life yeah exactly uh, yes apparently COVID but even before that yeah. yeah so definitely and so yeah that was that was the first thing I wanted to point out and so I can't say I uh, see too much of a problem and um, but definitely I do agree that university food can be a bit expensive and it has increased slightly like even a dollar or two to like coffees and uh, drinks that I uh, buy I remembered just about three months ago I was only spending about seven dollars maybe on a large coffee but then I remember going back just a few weeks ago uh, before the semester ended and it was already nine dollars and I was just like I don't remember it being this expensive but even just this a dollar or two more it kind of really give a big change a difference I would say to how much we're paying for food and although it's really good coffee and I think it's really worth it but of course yes if and if you love coffee it would be but I thought it was really interesting how she linked 
hunger and the ability to study and the ability to work and when yeah. you're talking about the academic staff and and we've heard often about the casualization of academic work uh, and, and all the casual um, instructors that are being brought in and <clears throat> yeah so I thought that was interesting and also some of her ideas of what universities could do mm-hmm. um, uh, and I, I remember hearing stories this is a while ago now about students having actually experiencing malnutrition because all they could afford was the two dollar instant noodles and that's what they lived on for periods mm-hmm. anyway I think there's so many layers and she did identify a lot of layers of this whether it's poorly paid staff what's available in the canteen what students can afford um, yeah so really interesting issue. And yeah, definitely. Yeah, very excited to have um, talked to Dr. Kent about this. Well, now we're going to be taking a short break, so stay tuned. Australia's most iconic bike riding holiday, the Great Vic Bike Ride, is on from Saturday 26th of November to Sunday 4th of December. This rolling bike festival will have you pedalling along the beautiful Great Ocean Road, through the Otways and Golden Plains. Tickets include all meals, a camping spot, luggage transfers, daily entertainment and more. Sign up at www.greatvic.com.au Use promo code 3CR to get 10% off. Great Vic Bike Ride, a 3CR supporter. Sonia Hammer of PX Fano. Join me and our Pacifica family as we talk about all things Pacifica for our queer Pacifica community. From news and information to covering all the arts and culture and events of our community for our community. PX Fano, the voice of queer Pacifica for Australia and the world, every Saturday afternoon, 1.30 to 2 o'clock, only on 3CR, 855 AM, Community Radio. And you are on 3CR, and the show is Wednesday Breakfast. And Grace and I are in the studio this morning, and it's so great to have you with us today. Thank you for tuning in. As many people would be aware, the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China concluded on the weekend, and there's been a huge amount of media speculation about what happened at the Congress and what the next five years under Xi Jinping will bring us. But my And my next guest is Yu Tao, Yu Tao sorry, a senior lecturer in Chinese studies at the University of Western Australia. Now, you trained as a political sociologist, and that's a mouthful, (laughs) and uh, the complexity of that, you can imagine, politics and sociology. And his primary academic mission is to make sense of social foundations and mechanisms underlying politics. 
He analyzed the speech Xi Jinping presented at the opening of the 20th National Congress for clues about how China will interact with the world over the next five years. And he was in Singapore when I spoke with him on Monday. And although the internet connection at his hotel hadn't been great, I think we did surprisingly well. I began by asking him about the importance of the National Congress, which is held in China every five years. Well, because, uh, as he said, you know, the National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party is a twice-in-a-decade event. It holds every five years, and it has two essential functions. First is that it will elect a new leadership, which will lead China for at least the five years uh, in the future, but could be longer. Uh, secondly, the general secretary of the party who at the moment and often is also the president of the People's Republic of China, they will have a report to the Congress. And within that report, there's often clear signals on where the party and the country will go in the next five years. That's why for anyone who's interested in Chinese politics, the party Congress is something that you just have to watch. It's similar to in the Western countries before the election, there are leadership debates. Uh, then you have to watch them to understand firstly who's likely to be leading the country, but also what they are likely going to do. Now, in terms of uh, President Xi Jinping, he now concurrently holds three important offices. General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, President of the People's Republic of China, and then he's the chairman or chairperson of the Central Military Commission. So those three positions, when they're held by one single person, that single person is the absolute final policy maker in China. So now let's come to your paper. You did a, an analysis of uh, Xi Jinping's speech, and you identified a number of key points that you feel give some indication of what we might expect in the future. What did you find when you had a look? When the report was first made public, the experts thought that was quite a conventional report. What she said there wasn't simply just his idea. Of course, he would make a decisive contribution on what can be said, what cannot, and what should be said in which way. But it wasn't just him. It was co-party leadership, kind of a consensus. How they reached the consensus, we don't know exactly, because the top politics of China is always like the black box for people who are outside party politics. One of the key points is that the national security this time is emphasized more than before. And this national security includes both traditional and non-traditional security. Traditional national security means a country's border is not going to be threatened by other countries. Issues like Taiwan and South China Sea essential national interests. And also that China is not likely to back down in its claim over these issues. We know that the United States has this Indo-Pacific strategies, which emphasize on bringing United States influence back into the Indo-Pacific region. And that overlapping with China's view on its national interests in South China Sea and in Taiwan, and arguably its development goals in South Pacific Island. If both countries keeps on pushing their own interests in this region, the possibility of uh, conflicts is going to 
increase. The second point, though, is she left enough ambiguity in his discourse. And as he said it, uh, China will decide its policy and positions on issues based on their own mirrors. Now, that has been a frequently used term by Xi and China's foreign minister or the spokesperson of the foreign ministry. And initially used to justify China's position in the Russian-Ukraine war, that China is not following the West to place any sanction on Russia. On the other hand, China is not uh, supporting Russia either. So I think on, on many other issues that China is keen to have this ambiguity so that they can judge where China's interest lies and decide uh, most beneficial policy move for themselves. Initiatives such as the Belt and Road Initiative, which emphasize investments on the infrastructure building, that will be there. And finally, I think China is not likely to just accept the rules-based international order Instead, according to Xi's language, China is going to democratize uh, the international order. It means that China does want a, a bigger say in what is right and what's wrong and how to do things on the international stage. So those were the key points I think we can interpret. And one of the key changes you've identified is the emphasis on national security and safety. We're looking at internal safety and security, but we're also looking at external. And I thought this was fairly significant. Tell me about Xi's global security initiative. Uh, The global security initiative was raised by Xi back in April. Since then, the Chinese diplomats has been writing articles to try to interpret what is global uh, security initiative. That's not entirely clear because the initiative is still in its early stage for development, or the Chinese leadership deliberately wants to keep it vague. Or ambiguous. Or ambiguous, maybe strategically ambiguous, so that in the future that they can interpret in the way they want. I was interested that the report also states China will protect legitimate rights and interests of its overseas citizens and legal persons. I'm wondering what this will look like in practice. Yes, that's a good point. And I think the background of this is that in the last few years, the chief finance officer of Huawei, which in theory is kind of not a state-owned enterprise, it's a private enterprise, but we know that it has big presence in China and in global market. And many people accuse it that the company has close link with the Chinese government because it does do lots of uh, information infrastructure in China and, and beyond. The CFO of Huawei was detained by the Canadian authority on the request of the United States government. And that was eventually resolved. Then she moved back to China. I think things like this, kind of China in the next five years or so, going to make more efforts to prevent things like this from happening. Or when it happens, China probably going to be more assertive. The Chinese Communist Party trying to appeal to the domestic audience. It tried to get more support from people actually within China. By saying that, no matter where the Chinese citizens is, no matter where Chinese enterprise is, that they will protect that. Now, how they actually do that, I think that remains uh, something we need to observe. 
And I guess as an extension of the Belt and Road Initiative, we're also seeing the exporting of Chinese policies to countries where they do have businesses. I'm thinking right now of the zero COVID policy, which has been exported or imposed on workers in Pakistan in one of the projects that China has there. And it's been very upsetting for families in this country. This is what I'm reading now in the media. Will China be exporting things like the zero COVID policy to those countries in which it has projects? I think that's that's a very interesting observation. I'm not aware of the, the things in Pakistan you just mentioned, but it's definitely something I will look uh, into. But judging from uh, what China has done in, in, in the past 10 years or so uh, regarding the Belt and Road Initiative, I think China's influence remains mostly in the economic fund, at least in Xi's report. And if you've just joined us, I'm speaking with Yu Tao, a senior lecturer in Chinese studies at the University of Western Australia, about his analysis of Xi Jinping's report to the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China on the opening day of the Congress. And, of course, any country has responsibility to look after its citizens abroad. So this really is not surprising. And uh, as uh, Yu Tao said, this is um, something that uh, more message uh, to the Chinese people as much as anything. And he also pointed out, um, not on air, but that, uh, in fact, there was very little in the report about uh, the international situation or international politics generally. Um, but the other thing I did wonder uh, you know, because this is his uh, analysis was done before the end of the Congress. I did wonder if the, he had seen any surprises in what happened during the Congress, particularly at the end. I don't think anything in the end was surprising. Beforehand, there was no expectation for that to be happening. But of course, beforehand, there were different speculations on who's likely to become next premier and who's likely to be in or out of the standing committee. Given that she has been very bold in his first two terms, it's kind of expected when you think in the hindsight. And what was the significance of Hu Jintao being removed from the final meeting of the Congress, in your view? There's been a lot of speculation and different views expressed. I'm wondering what you think. We really need more information and more insider's information. There are all sorts of theories, but we don't know what actually happened there. It's simply a health issue, or there's a more in-depth conflict. We know that Xi's leadership style is very, very different from his predecessor. Yes. And the direction that Xi tries to lead China into and the ways that he does things is very different. So with or without you know, speculation of the meanings, if there's any, of removing Hu Jintao, we know that uh, she's doing things in his own way. And what about the new leadership team, which I understand is really made up of she uh, supporters, loyalists, and not necessarily based on talent? There are comments on the likely figure of China's uh, next uh, premier, Li Qiang, that he never worked in the central government, albeit they don't have the national government's experience, they might still be able to manage. We don't know about talent, but what we know for sure is that the new team uh, is likely to be very loyal to to see always support him. Another interesting observation that lots of people made is there's no succession plan there. So this new team, they are slightly younger than she, but not much younger than him, not like one generation younger than him. 
I think she is probably looking for a fourth term in five years' time. There could be personal ambitions, but、uh, if you ask Xi, he might tell you that because he really wants a stable leadership for China. That he got these grand plans for China, and many of the grand plans, at least they are talking about in the mid-century. So it's likely that she wants to be staying his position for much longer, so that he can oversee his grand plans. Are there some risks for Xi in surrounding himself with yes men, if you like, and they are men? On theory, of course,、uh, if you put all the power on the one person, if that person makes a mistake and nobody corrects that, there's lack of check and balance, and it's going to be very dangerous. But also,、uh, if one person has to take all the responsibilities, no matter how dedicated he is, he doesn't have a chance to make a mistake and correct that. But I think she and his comrades probably think the the stability of the leadership is important for long term plans. And they were probably not very inspired by what happened in in Britain, for example, that you got a prime minister last for forty five days. I think things like that made Western democracy viewed very negatively, not only in Xi's eyes, but in many of his comrades and in Chinese people's eyes. The current Chinese policy emerged from Cultural Revolution, even though there's a lot of discourse saying that she's trying to make himself a Mao. But one thing that the Chinese Communist Party was able to Hold power in the last four decades is to persuade Chinese people to believe that the chaotic is not good. We shouldn't have chaotic. So that's why you have the single party rule and the succession plan made in the party. I think for Xi and his comrades, he probably think a stable long term leadership will ensure the best interests of the Chinese nation. Now whether or not everyone agrees with that, that's another thing. But for them. They're not inspired, I think, by the Western style, where you got the leadership change very often. What do you expect to see in the relationship between China and Australia as a result of Xi Jinping staying in power? After the change of the Australian government, the, the new Labour's、uh, Albanese government, I think、uh, it does present the opportunity to improve Australian-China relationship in comparison with. Couple of years ago, however,、uh, there's still lots of challenges. If Australian keeps on supporting the United States Indo-Pacific strategy, and if Australian keeps on advocating the rules-based international order, which I think the Australian will do, given what we have discussed, that's not going to be consistently with, for example, Xi's vision. Of the world or his vision of South China Sea, so there's huge issues and challenges for the China-Australian relations there. On the other hand, China also keep this, you know, strategic ambiguity. I think if both parties can be more flexible in their stance and be more artistic in doing the diplomacy, we might see some improving comparisons with two years ago. Uh, so strategic ambiguity, <laughs> how <laughs> what an interesting concept, and artistic, and I interpret that to be creative. Yes, De- you too.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, diplomacy,、uh, but it doesn't sound easy. It sounds tricky. You know, one of the things I thought of this is kind of a you know aside in a way, but、uh, I worked in Beirut for a while, and I remember going to a party, and after the party, someone said to me. Did you notice no one talked about politics at the party?、Oh. And 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 I said, well, no, I didn't notice. And she said, we're good friends, but we all come from different political 
uh, backgrounds. We have different ideas yeah. about the politics and what should happen here. And so we just don't talk about it and we continue to be good friends. Yeah, definitely. I think sometimes it's quite, uh, I guess, a healthy thing to do when you don't really engage in things that um, can cause conflict and misunderstandings. But yes. of course, sometimes it's so, I, I think it's so very important to dwell into situations and things that are happening around us. So as much as political situations can be quite tiring and tiring to talk about sometimes, but it's, I guess it's a good thing for some people. It's a good and a bad in a way. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think it's, um, you do need to be as, I guess, strategic. Yeah. You do need to be thinking about the implications of the things you say and what you do. That's for sure. And uh, look, a big thank you to, to you, Tao, for joining us on 3CR to discuss his analysis of Xi Jinping's report to the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China. And I have to say also, we went on further. I asked him questions that weren't uh, in the paper. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, he was very generous, I think, to, to give us some of his perspective on that. I think we were all horrified by what happened with Liz Truss. I really. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's very unexpected. I really, um, as much as we um, see things are not going well with the UK, but obviously. It was very a very surprising news that I got yeah, in the morning. I think when I we first were all taken aback. And yeah. and looking at a lot of the commentary though around the next five years with Xi Jinping, of course the biggest concern has been his human rights record, and we're likely to see more of that um, in, over the next five years. I'm thinking as part of his desire to make uh, China, you know, like a world mm-hmm. power, uh, and and you know promote um, also his ideas. It's unfortunate, I think, that he doesn't have. Any uh, checks and balances, as you, Tao, pointed out, uh, just surrounding himself with people who may not have the courage to challenge what he thinks. And well, we've heard similar things about Putin and in Russia as well, not having, you know, anyone who will challenge his point of view. But the the article is available in on the conversation. How China, how will China interact with the world after the next five years? She's speech hold holds clues and actually you can get his speech online you can read it for yourself there's lots more in it than we had the time to talk about so do check out some of that uh, commentary very useful you're on wednesday breakfast on 3cr and over to grace yes um so before we head on to our next segment we've got a song for you this is called happy earth by tidus
so clear blue light makes sturdy strong eucalypts makes laughing kookaburras sing to the sky the clouds floating by on the air that we breathe rain falls to the rivers and seas happier 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 happier, happier. That was Happy Of by Tidus. So now we'll be heading on to our next segment. If you're unfamiliar with what Google Earth is, it is basically a program that renders 3D representation of Earth based primarily on satellite imagery to find countries and the names of the lands of that region you are looking for. However, these technologies carry a rarely acknowledged subjective and colonial agenda towards representing places. Joining me this morning is Jakali Romanis, a proud Pita Pita women artist, researcher and curator, who is currently conducting her PhD research in Monash University. Her research focuses on examining large corporations like Google Earth Image, and we will be discussing problematic Western maps such, as such, with its inaccurate representation of indigenous knowledge of place and the myth of Terra Nullis, another name for Peter Peter, located in Western Queensland. Good morning, Jahali. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good, thanks. All right. So your expertise is to use art to explore Western maps like Google Earth. But before we head into that, you had used it to explore Peter Peter. Could you have first explained what happened while you were using this map? To explore your land? Um, yeah, sure. So I started this project in 2020, at the start of the pandemic, and what sort of brought me to exploring Pitta Pitta through Google Earth was actually not being able to travel there because of COVID-19 restrictions. And so what I found was um, the imagery that was within Google Earth of Peter Peter hadn't been updated for more than 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it hadn't been updated since 2007. The imagery was really low detail. Um, in parts, there was no street view. So there are sort of like two functions of Google Earth. There's this aerial view, and then there's a street view function as well. Um, and I found that the street view function was only available down you know, the main street of a small town called Bouya, which sits on the Pitta Pitta. And how did you use um, art to explore this problematic nature of this map? Um, I, I use my practice as a way of pointing the finger at Google Earth, essentially, by utilising the images that they've made and then layering images that I have made of country on top. Um, so I'm sort of saying, this is what you can see in Google Earth, and then this is what actually exists there. Um, and for me, I, I found that my practice is, you know, a more accessible way for people to actually interact with these ideas and understand them. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm, I see. And um, I remember when you uh, was talking about this in the conversation article that which uh, which I where I found you, and you mentioned about a wadi tree, which is a 
rare species of Acacia endemic to central parts of Australia. And and as you've mentioned, when you were looking at Google Earth, it had been reduced to a blob of, blob of pixels. So you wondered why was this tree um, treated as very unimportant. So what was your answer to that? Um, well, the answer to that, I mean, <laughs> that's a, a tricky question. Mm-hmm. Um, the Wadi tree is an important corroboree tree for my people. And so that's why I went looking for that particular site within Google Earth. Um, but, yeah, thinking about sort of solutions and answers to how we can kind of uh, combat combat isn't really the right word, but how we can think critically about these technologies. Um, It's really difficult because I feel that a meaningful collaboration with traditional owners and with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples about country and place with corporations like Google Earth actually probably isn't possible in that these two very contrasting value systems being forced to work together. Um, I just, yeah, I don't think it all, I don't think it could really work. I don't think Google Earth could meaningfully collaborate with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, yeah, does that make sense? Is that what you mean by solutions? Or Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was just um, because uh, obviously the fact that they had like created into a block of pixels it shows that they didn't really understand the importance of this tree being there even though and especially because they were showing about um, images of the land it's also very important to include parts of it that are meant to be there so yeah definitely and then um, how ha- how has this created this false colonial narrative of the terra nullis which means land belonging to no one um, well terra nullis was a term used when Australia was first colonised. And as you said, it means land belonging to no one. And so through my work, I'm suggesting that Google Earth is actually continuing this false narrative because there is no significant acknowledgement of, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander custodianship of country and of place. Um, Obviously... Within Australian history, we understand that Australia was stolen from traditional owners and traditional custodians. Um, and, yeah, to kind of not have that acknowledgement even of place names or whose country you're on or anything like that, I think it's continuing this narrative that we weren't here, that this was this wasn't indigenous land when we were colonized which of course isn't true uh, it's Judith here. I'm just um, interested in the way that this colonization is perpetuated by these kinds of things like Google Earth maps. And uh, it, it must come was it must have been really startling for you when you kind of realize that. Yeah, no, it absolutely was. Um, I mean, it was startling, but not surprising. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And what's your country? Um, country for me is Pitcher Pitcher. So it's about 300 kilometres south of Mount Isa in Queensland. Right, okay. 
Uh, yeah, so I mean that's really interesting country there. It's it's very I, I'm a, a lot of mining happening there, of course. Um, yeah, so not not particularly around Pitta Pitta, thankfully, but yeah, it's, it's you know there's only a very small township that sits on Pitta Pitta. The population is like 300 people, so it's it's quite um, isolated. Um, yeah. Yeah, and again, I mean, Grace already did ask about your art. So you're imposing uh, maps for First Nations peoples on the Google Maps, as that was my sense of it. But please tell me if I'm wrong. I'm sorry. What was that? <laughs> oh, so, I'm sorry too. Um, I, I'm just. Uh, I mean, Grace already did ask about you know your art and how your engage your art is engaging with this. Uh, phenomenon that you've discovered and I'm kind of um, wondering, you know, if I were seeing a piece of your art, what it would look like Um, (laughs) That's a good question Um, You, I think my work looks a lot like this strange third dimension which is essentially what Google Earth is in a way Yes. Um, so you'd see lots of pixels, lots of, it would look like, I guess, some sort of um, dystopian video game landscape. That's what it would look like. It sounds um, amazing. It's quite, it's quite hard <laughs> it's, to describe it with words, isn't it? Because your, your expertise is on showing pictures to really, um, I would say, uh, portray what, you want, what you're trying to show. Is that correct? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's... <laughs> That's a you know a fun exercise actually trying to describe it with words. <laughs> yes, definitely. And yeah, I remember when I was reading um, the article about how you were describing it, the the pixels and everything it was very interesting to see that although some people might not exactly um, understand the terms that we are using in terms like pixels and like the glitches and stuff. So yeah, it's very interesting on that. And um, I just wanted to ask you. Um, you said you mentioned something about technology dysfunctions of this glitches in time, as you mentioned with the Wadi tree, uh, and these are like considered tears in the technological fabric of Google Earth. What did you exactly mean by that? Yeah, so um, I think we expect technologies like Google Earth because of the way that they've been made to be these very clean cut functional tools that we can use um, but like any technology that we engage with there will be times where it doesn't work as it should um, and so these glitches in time are these sort of spots that I found where this technology kind of dysfunctions is where I found that either the image isn't rendering correctly um it warps. Um, basically, I'm sort of pointing to these, you know, where the, where Google Earth, the image and the resolution and everything that comes with it doesn't work as it should. And so I'm saying when that occurs that it is glitching and therefore tearing, so tearing itself apart. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. 
So uh, you're trying to imply that like these glitches are showing. So this glitches image, it's basically representing and resembling the tears of this technological dysfunction. I mean, technological fabric of Google Earth. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Understood. And um, yeah. So with with this article that you also have put up, about what what do you want our listeners to understand coming out from this? Um, I think to never kind of take things on face value. So particularly when we think about maps, mm-hmm. um, when we think about Google Earth, you know, I think often we approach these technologies as if they are scientific and that they're objective. When actually there are very subjective decisions made about what is included in these maps and what isn't. Um, so I think to kind of, you know, approach these technologies critically um, because there are narratives sort of embedded within them with agendas, basically. Yeah. Mm, I see. Yep. That's, yeah, it's very interesting. And I remembered when I was reading uh, throughout your entire article, I was so interested in this because I never knew there was a problem with this. Like, I, I had heard of Google Earth before, but I didn't realize there was these small little things that they didn't really represent. And I think it's so important to um, have accurate representation of indigenous knowledge of place. So definitely that um, I hope this thing can be solved and in the future, although that's how it goes, right? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you got something out of it. <laughs> no problem. Uh, thank you so much, Akali, on on this. Um, yeah, hope to talk to you soon. And in case if there's anything in the future about this, we can t- chat then. Thank you so much, Grace, for having right. me. Thank you. No problem. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Joining me this morning was Jakali Romanis, a proud Pita Pita woman artist, researcher, and curator who is currently conducting her PhD research in Monash University, where we discussed problematic Western maps and their inaccurate representation of the indigenous, indigenous knowledge of place and the myth of Terra Nullis, um, which is also known as the actually the Wadi Tree. You can follow her via Instagram at Drukromanis, uh, spelled as J-U-C-R-O-M-A-N-I-S. Yes, yep, that is true via Instagram. And the conversation article that I was actually mentioning about, it's actually talking about how Google Earth is an illusion, how I am using art to explore the problematic nature of Western maps and the myth of Terra Nullis. You can head on to conversation there to learn more. It's so interesting, you know, the comment there on science, because we kind of think this is an objective thing. But in fact, decisions are made about what is going to be investigated, what data is collected. And often those things are, you know, embed particular sociological ideas and ideas uh, that people have about, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, well, reinforce, shall I say colonial kind of ideas. So I'm really, I haven't read that paper, so I'm really going to have a look and I'm really interested in, in what I'm going to find. Cause, and if I can get along to some of the art, that would be wonderful as well. Yeah, definitely. And especially because from for Jakali, she, her expertise is on art. So 
art is always something that is very hard to describe, especially on radio. Yes, so, of course. Yeah, and yeah. especially because she's using the technology to do it. And, yeah. you know, there's all these difficult terms that she needs to use to describe things. And I think um, if the, our listeners do lis- uh, do read the article, you they will be able to really understand the pictures that we yeah. can't actually, unfortunately can't show on air as yeah. a picture. But, you know, hopefully the words that we tried to use uh, yeah. help describe she, what she was trying to interpret. Yeah, yeah. and I guess uh, I remember in a quote about poetry saying a poem should not mean, but be. And I guess it's the same with art. It should just be and you go and you engage with it. So, um, We've had a really busy show this morning, Grace. Yeah, we had four segments and obviously um, the first one was about environment. And then we, after that, we moved on to talking about uh, university stuff and the food insecurity surrounding them. And after that, we talked about how China is going to be the next five years. And then we ended with um, problematic Western maps. So a very variety, <laughs> a range of topics. And yeah, I think that's one of the great things about radio is that we get to... Uh, especially for our show, Breakfast, talking about current <laughs> affairs, it's um, it's a very interest, a very good opportunity for us to talk about different range of topics, and all these relate to current issues that are going on. And it's, yes, indeed, and, exactly. And and I was thinking, you know, last week um, you did a story. Actually, you spoke with Lindsay Pierce mm-hmm. about the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture and other cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment and punish or punishment. Yeah. And we we heard from Lindsay that, of course, the, the, in the UN committee was visiting Australia uh, to go with unannounced visits uh, to detention centers, prisons, and they've had to suspend that visit because they didn't get access. So that was um, deeply concerning. I just wanted to follow up from your story last week. More on that to come, I'm sure. Yeah. And I remembered that this is actually ending tomorrow, the visit of the UN to to Australia and uh, um, to uh, the, all these detention centers. If I'm not mistaken, it is ending tomorrow. And so. they've suspended their yeah. visit. Yeah, because they couldn't get access oh, to yes. the places. Yeah, yeah there's certain, certain places. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's already been made uh, as a fact that it's going to be unannounced visits. And so... and. T- Technically, the United Nations have the rights to uh, visit right. this detention center. Yeah. So it's very upsetting and obviously suspicious that they're not being allowed to do so. Suspicious is the word. Definitely. <laughs> yes. yes, very, very, very suspicious. So, um, yeah, but let's uh, hope something good comes out from this, although we don't really know what's going to happen. And But let's hope better transparency is coming out for what happens behind closed doors in Australia. Yep, definitely. Well, um, very good show today to have to do with you, Judith. Oh, thank you. Well, it's the first time we've worked together, just the two of us, I think. So, yeah, quite an experience. Definitely. And then next week, uh, we'll be coming back with more interesting stories for everyone. Yes, and and hoping Claudia will be back next week, but uh, we shall see. Yep. Yep. Stay tuned for Stick Together. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.